In this room are three terrorists. Another is seen smiling in this photo of a school class trip. Nothing in these rare images sets the men apart from the people around them. Or hints at the horrifying suicide mission they would one day carry out. In time, their names and faces became known all over the world. They were the leaders of the September 11th hijackers. Four young men who met as students in the German city of Hamburg. Hello, everyone. Last time in the Road to 9-11 series, we looked at the West Coast hijackers responsible for crashing Flight 77 into the Pentagon. We talked about how they were being monitored by the CIA and how the agency deliberately blocked the FBI from finding out about them, effectively providing them with protection. This time, we are looking at a group containing the other three pilots, known as the Hamburg Cell. I'll be asking Adam if the intelligence agencies were also monitoring this group. Firstly, Adam gives an overview of the main players in the cell. According to US and German authorities, the Hamburg Cell began with Mohammed Atta, Marwan El Shehi, and Ramzi bin Shabib moved to Germany and rented an apartment in Mainstraub, located in Hamburg, Germany, on November 1st, 1998. Okay, so that's, that's two of the hijackers, and then Ramzi bin El Shabib, he's not a hijacker, but he, he tried to be, but he wasn't. I just like, so Mohammed Atta and Marwan El Shehi are two of the, not only two of the hijackers, two of the pilots, right? The two pilots that went into right. the, the towers. That's that's right. Uh, Ramsey Binshabi tried to be a pilot, but he couldn't get into the United States because he was not accepted uh, through the visa program. Um, the men actually would, would frequent uh, the Al-Quds Mosque. Um, it was headed by a Moroccan named Mohammed Al-Fazazi. Uh, and Fazazi would give fiery lectures about the immorality of the world, which desperately needed Islam. Uh, Friday evenings would generally have up to like 250 people. Um, they would be listening to Fazazi, who is a Sunni Wahhabi believer himself. Um, Muhammad Atta himself grew up in Egypt. Uh, his father, uh, Muhammad El Amir Awad Al, uh, Al Sayed Atta, was a lawyer educated in both um, civil and uh, Sharia law. Um, his mother, Buthayim and Muhammad Ashraki, came from a very moderate, wealthy family, um, very educated in many areas. Um, Atta himself, in his early formula years, was an insular child, excelled in his studies at a very early age. Um, later on, he graduated from Cairo University, but was considered an average student. Um, Egypt, under Hosni Mubarak, the president, uh, during the early 1990s, was a hotbed for Islamic extremism. Uh, between 1992 and 98, uh, military courts tried more than a thousand civilians in mass trials. Most of them were convicted of being alleged members of Al Jihad or um, Al, Al Gamma Islamia. But most of these people were just innocent people. Um, in, in, yeah, you're about to say. Well, just to 
link it back, to, there's a connection there. Well, ages ago, when we did the episode on Algeria and the radicals returning from the Afghan war, and we focused on our, in on Algeria because there's a whole state-sponsored connection potentially there to the Islamic radicals. But equally, we could have talked about Egypt because there were some like huge terrorist incidents happened in Egypt in the 90s, right? Like a whole massacre of tourists at Luxor Temple, and then a, a crackdown on the Islamic radicals after that. Yeah, that was the Luxor massacre. Um, I, I did I did a summary on that on Facebook too, um, and that in itself garnered worldwide attention because a lot of tourists were killed from Japan, United States, mm. um, Israel as well. Um, and this led to a huge crackdown in Egypt uh, regarding um, who was considered uh, militant, actually. And, of course, a lot of these people were just suspected of being militants because a lot of people were informing for the state because the state promised them um, um, a little bit of favor regarding their freedoms and civil liberties. So, I mean, everybody was like pointing fingers at each other and a lot of these people were civilians, but when they were torturing these people, they actually were fermenting more of the Islamic extremism for these mm -hmm. cults. And they were saying, look, you know, we need to get rid of the state. And they were creating more terrorists than they were um, the fighting terrorists. Which has been a continuous story in Egypt going back to the 1950s where we started with Saeed Qutb and that. Was the That's correct. So they said it. Right, so they were inflaming more extremism. They were inhibiting of it. So in 1992, uh, Atta, according to Egyptian intelligence reports and uh, a news po a news article posted in the Guardian in 2001, joined a uh, offshoot of the Bro Muslim Brotherhood called the um, the Engineers Syndicate. Uh, these are one of the three professional associations uh, controlled by the, the Brotherhood itself. Uh, one day. His father had over a German couple who were visiting the Egypt's capital. And the unnamed uh, couple began to tell Atar about a student exchange program that would help him in his studies. Uh, six months later, Atar would leave for Germany. He would end up enrolling at the Hamburg University of Technology. And he would stay at the German couple. They were high school teachers. And they would allow Atar to stay with them until he got situated. But the couple found out to be rather insulated and introverted. He began strict diets under Islamic law. So he began frequenting local mosques. And by, by 1994, Atta's professor, Ditmar Machul, had invited Atta to travel with him in Aleppo, Syria. And there Atta would begin his thesis regarding uh, the uh, lack of Islamic law in, in Syria. By late 95, Atta had visited the Al-Quds Mosque located in Hamburg. The mosque itself adhered to a harsh, uh, uncompromising, fundamentalist, militant version of Sunni Islam, most uh, Salafi Islam, which is Wahhabi Islam. Atta would become one of its loyal members. He would start friendships here with two acquaintances, Munir al-Mutasadek and Ramsi bin al-Shib. Ramzi bin Shabib would teach classes here. By, uh, by April 11, 1996, Atta signs his last will and testament at the mosque, um, which also happened to be, incidentally, when Israel, Israel attacked Lebanon in Operation Grapes of Wrath. And that gave Atta his vigor and to, to dictate his will. Mohammed, I mean, uh, Ramzi bin al-Shib was born and raised in Yemen, and his family was known as 
well-to-do working class people. His father died at a very young age. Um, and Bin Shabib would work numerous jobs until 1995, where he would try for a U.S. visa. Um, his request was denied by U.S. officials, and this wouldn't be the first time. While in Germany, he would frequent the Al-Quds Mosque, and he met um, two future friends that will have later implications, Mohammed Atan Marwan al-Shehi, and later on, Ziad Jara. Marwan al-Shehi himself was born and raised in the United Arab Emirates. His father was a Muslim cleric, and his, his mother was the Egyptian, but he, she was a devout wife and kept to herself. Um, his father would die in 97, so his early years are quite unknown. And what is known about him is generally from neighbors in the Al-Shehi family, they knew them as quiet people. Actually, in, in 1995, he graduated high school and enlisted in the military, and he was admitted on a scholarship to travel to Germany to continue his studies. When Al-Shehi arrived in Germany in April 96, he moved into an apartment, which he shared with three other scholarship students uh, for two months before boarding with the local German family. Uh, several months later, he moved into his own apartment. Those who personally knew him while he was in Germany described him as a very um, devout in his Islamic faith, but he wore Westernized clothing. He would travel to European countries. And in 1998, he, he moved to Hamburg. And there he would frequent the Al-Qud Mosque, where he would meet Muhammad Atta, Ramzi bin Shabib, and he'd become much more radical in his views, like before he wasn't. Ziad Jara, an interesting character, to say the least. He'll be the most interesting of all of them, along with Muhammad Atta. Ziad Jara was born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon, near the Becca Valley, where the Shiite community thrived. His father is a mid-level bureaucrat. His mother was well off as a teacher, um, very well-to-do family, affluent in that neighborhood. Uh, the family often drives a Mercedes while Majara attends private Christian schools. His mother and father, although Sunni Muslims, were secular in their beliefs and lifestyles. Jara, at a very young age, dreamed of flying planes. His father, Samir al-Jara, discouraged him early on because he hated the, uh, the prospect of him crashing somewhere and losing his son. Jara himself drank alcohol, had many girlfriends, was quite sociable to everybody. And then in 1995, he moved to Yemen. In the spring of 96, Jara himself moved to Germany with his second cousin, Salim al-Jara. And both en enrolled at the University of Greifswald, where he shared an apartment with Salim. But both would attend parties, discos. They're quite amicable, the both of them. And it was here he met his future girlfriend, Azel Sanguin. Um, after a year, he moved to Hamburg, where he registered at the University of Applied Sciences. Sanguin moved to Bochum, Germany, lived separately, where she pursued her studies to become a doctor. In 97, Jared left Guisfall and began studying aerospace engineering at the University of Applied Sciences in Hamburg while working at a Volkswagen paint shop. By 97, Muhammad Atta was growing a full beard. He was beginning teaching classes now at Al-Quds Mosque. Ziad Jar would own his own apartment in which he rented from a woman named Rosemary Cannell. And it was here that Ziad Jar would frequent the Al-Quds Mosque. It was not exactly known when, uh, what day specifically, but it happened in between the very early period of 1997. Also in this year, Al-Qaeda militants who would visit the mosque um, 
were, ha, would be very important in, in their, their life. And one name was Muhammad Hayden Zamar, a Syrian-born militant. He has numerous connections with the Islamic extremist underworld and also contacts with the criminal organizations in Germany, Morocco, and Syria. German authorities, uh, the ZBF, I, I think I'm getting that wrong, um, once tried to term it as an informant, but with no luck. And beginning in the spring of 97, neighbors of Muhammad Atta would see Zamar carrying boxes up to the, the walkway up to his house. U.S. investigators believe he may have persuaded Islam, uh, Atta's Islamic study um, to offer its services to al-Qaeda. But later in the year, Muhammad Atta and fellow plotter Ramzi bin Shabib and two of their associates, Muhammad Belfast, who was connected with Zamar and Hayden Zamar would find employment at a, a um, Hamburg area computer company called Hay Computing Services. And another Al Qud visitor and close associate to Zamar was Mabmoon Darkenzali. Now, Darkenzali was also Syrian born. He also had bank accounts in his name, while deposits came from Saudi businesses in the late fall of 97. One such uh, deposit was a $250,000 deposit from a Saudi public company called the, the Tawik Group. Um, the uh, Dark Gazali would frequent um, Atta, Al Shay, and Bin Shabib during this period. The Tawik Group's a very large, and they're still in existence, a very large social sector that pertain to plumbing and electronics. Interestingly enough, though, it is said that out of the Hamburg cells, Yad Jar would only be seen a handful of times within the group because Jara lives separately and alone from the members and can be confirmed to only met one time with them in Hamburg on a single occasion, and that was Saeed Bahaji's wedding at the Al-Qud Mosque in October of 99, per the 9-11 Commission report. Now, however, during 1998, Jara would begin a friendship with a known Islamic militant. His name was Abdul Rahman al-Makhadi. And he was known on the streets as Mr. K. And he would meet Jara frequently during this period. In 1999, now this is important, an important turn of events would happen to the group, known as the Hamburg cell. They would meet uh, an individual named Mahmoud Aoud Slahahi, a very known high-end Al-K supporter who actually fought in the Soviet uh, war, who actually was uh, also uh, contact within the Chechen militants, and he gave bayat, which is loyalty, bayat, loyalty to bin Laden in 1991. According to his testimony, Slahi would allege that he received a phone call from his cousin, Malfouz al-Walid, who's a very high-end top commander who served under the auspices of Muhammad Aitab, who's the commander-in-chief of al-Qaeda. However, Mahfouz was calling from a tapped satellite phone. It was Bin Laden's. And the line was tapped by the NSA. And he told Slahi to come and visit uh, 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 Afghanistan. And Slahi met with Ramzi bin Shabib in Frankfurt because they lived together with them in 98. By October of 99, bin Shabib and al-Shi closed Slahi. He invites him to come where he lives in Duisburg, Germany, and he invites him to come to Afghanistan. So al-Shabib Ramzi bin Nasheed, Marwan al-Shay, Muhammad Atta, and Ziad Jara all travel to Slai, with Slai to Afghanistan to meet with who? Khalid Sheikh Muhammad and Muhammad Atta instead of going to Chechnya because Muhammad Atta 
as the Ajar and Mawarashi would, would watch anti-imperialistic uh, videos on TV, and they, they were persuaded to go to Chechnya and fight with the militants there to fight against the, uh, the nationalist state of, of Yugoslavia under, um, I'm forgetting the president's name. Well, I mean, well, on Chechnya, Chechnya is different. Um, that, Chechnya is, uh, that's Chechnya right, Chechnya is different. Right, that's right. I think it was Chechnya they were going to, so Chechnya is trying that's to right. secede from Russia. Thank you for correcting me there. They wanted to go to Chechnya, but they were, they, they were persuaded by Slahi to go to Afghanistan instead, and they meet with the top-level al-Qaeda uh, operators. They were told they were to go on a highly secret mission, and they were instructed to turn, return to Germany after the operation uh, planning and enroll in flight schools immediately. While they returned to Germany, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed starts visiting in, uh, visiting Aza in Hamburg frequently. He also, he also rents an apartment there, keeping close contact with them by this time with German intelligence, who monitors the apartment but does not notice Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was in Hamburg. Right. He moves there with them. He is moves he there. not a wanted man at this point for his involvement yes. in Kaplan? Yeah, he, he actually is. He's wanted ever since Qatar, and he flees Qatar because... The uh, Richard Clark actually gives the okay to try and pick him up, with uh, but they couldn't do it because Qatar authorities tapped him and he flees. So I mean, just so everyone remembers, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. We talked about back when we spoke about Bajinka, and he was one of the um, architects of that, right. along with Ramzi Youssef. He was Ramzi Youssef's was his uncle, wasn't he? Um, right. Yeah, but so I'm just surprised he's able to freely move around in Europe at this point. Yeah, I mean, it, it's strange to believe. And because, and, and here's the, the kicker, German intelligence don't even know who he is. Right. So they, I guess the CIA never notified German intelligence, but like they didn't even know who he is, so they didn't pick him up on the radar. But it does, like, it, it does lend to the, the curiosity of why is it this guy more closely monitored? Uh, be that as it may, he rents an apartment in, in Hamburg, Germany. And according to German investigators, by at least this time, the Al-Qaeda Hamburg cell uh, Mohammed Atta, Shehi, Ziajar, and Ben Shabib have come up with the idea of attacking the United States with airplanes. This theory, which I'm going to talk about, is based on witness statements and discovery of the German police that they found a flight simulator file on a computer used by the Hamburg cell that was downloaded between January and October of 99. So that means they knew about the plot as far back as 99, about using planes. When you say the German police found it, do, how did they find, were they, do you mean they found it, it in 1999 or? It, no, this was after 9-11. So they left a laptop somewhere, the Hamburg. That's right, they left, they left it there, the, the, uh, the, the apartment. The German intelligence, the, B, the BF, monitors Mohammed Zaymar as well, who temporarily lives with Atal, Bahaji, and Shabib. So a lot of these, what I'm saying is a lot of these high-level Al-Qaeda operatives are living either with them or nearby. And it's a bit of a strange thing to do, Adam, if you're a terrorist and you're going to pull off a major operation that you leave a laptop lying around with a flight simulator on it. It's almost like leaving a paper trail, isn't it? it yeah, it just seems a bit too much. Right. I mean, laptops aren't cheap yes. for a start. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? right. It's almost like, here, look at this direction. Meanwhile, you have all these more bigger, mysterious operatives living right nearby, closely watching them, and monitoring and shaping them to do something that will benefit them and other people as well. Interesting to know. Um, 
And because they don't know who Zamar is and they don't know who Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is, but they know who these people are and they're monitoring them. Now, the, 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 the building is, is at 54 Mainstrasse in Hamburg. This is a four bedroom apartment. It is also said that the CIA is also monitoring Zamar as well, but it is unknown how long, conveniently known. Now, meanwhile, in the spring of 99, Muhammad Atta takes flying lessons to the Philippines, and he's with Marwan al-Shahi. Also at this time, Jar has an unofficial wedding with Azul Seguin at the Al-Quds Mosque. A photo of Jara, it's a famous photo, with many members of the Al-Quds Mosque, would be found in Azul's um, apartment after 9-11 by the Herm Hamburg Intelligence Agency, the LFB, which is the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution. 18 of these people in this pic would be known by name. How does this know? This would suggest that German intelligence had a mole inside the cell in 1999. Because how would they know who these people were by name, right? Now, Zamar would begin having regular contacts with high-level Al-Qaeda operational coordinators. U.S. intelligence, most notably the NSA and the CIA, would not tell German authorities of Zamar. Instead, the German authorities are given evidence from Turkey that Zamar is running a travel agency as a terror front in Hamburg. Conveniently no. By late 99, Mohammed Atta, Al-Shay, al and Ramzi Bim Shabib traveled to the Netherlands to hold a meeting. It was here they would meet with an associate named Munir al Motazek. I mentioned his name earlier, who in turn is giving funding from unnamed Saudi financiers. In late 99, Mohammed Atta, Siyad Jara, Marwan al-Shay would be appointed as the pilots for what they would call the planes operation plot. They would be selected as the pilots for they have experience living in Western society, as well as being well-educated, and as well as having some English-speaking skills. According to information from KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and Ramzi bin Shabib years after 9-11, all three went to Kandahar and met with bin Laden personally. Here they pledged Bayat loyalty to him and accepted the operations plot. On their return journey, Muhammad left Karachi on February 24, 2000, by flight TK-1057 uh, to Istanbul, where he changed flight to Hamburg, and immediately after returning to Germany, Ada, Shehi, and Jad report their passport stolen, to, and that would possibly discard the travel to Afghanistan to try and lead the, the, uh, the paper trail. Mm -hmm. And by January 2000, they would begin their plans to travel to the United States to begin their final operation. And we'll leave it there. Okay. I have um, a question about the man that didn't make it in, Ramzi bin al-Shabib. Okay. Mm -hmm. In the previous episode, we talked about this summit in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, okay? And we talked about how the CIA were monitoring that and Khalid Ahmadinejad and Nawafar Al-Hamzi, yes. they both attended. Yes. Okay, and the CIA then claimed they lost them, but they, they knew they were going to be entering the United States at some point because they had visas to do so. Right, okay. that's right. And no one believes that, right? The, the CIA just lost them. Richard Clark, the security advisor, um, spoke about this. We played the clip in the last episode of him doing so. So the, 
the CIA was still monitoring them in the United States, either directly or using Saudi intelligence to do so. But Ramzi bin Al-Shabib was also at the Malaysia summit, right? So would it be fair to assume the CIA monitored him as he went back to Germany then, and that would have given them the Hamburg cell? Yes, and you could, you could add, even though there's not much in the way of like direct information that the CIA was monitoring him personally, but it would be hard to remiss if they didn't because he actually is still in contact with the two people that the CIA was monitoring, Mohammed, Mohammed Hamar Zamar and Mahmoud Darkanzali. And that's important because these are the people who actually molded Mohammed Atad Shehi and Ziajar and helped them along the way in terms of planning this operation as well. And the CIA was actually monitoring these two people. And it wasn't just the CIA, you have German authorities that were um, monitoring them as well. But German authorities actually stopped um, monitoring these people, I think in, in 99 totally, because they said that they couldn't pick up um, any relevant information, uh, even though much later after 9-11, that wasn't the case. They had a lot of relevant, but they just didn't share it. And the CIA also, once again, doesn't share information regarding Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or Zamar with the German authorities, because if they did, German authorities would actually have to pick up Zamar and KSM. Doesn't that sound familiar? These guys would come to the United States, and if they warned the FBI, they could have arrested them and hold them. Now, Bin Shabib, I, th I think that they always monitor him. They always have. Because he was at the high level meeting. And remember, he wasn't the only one. The other people, too, like um, Ridwan Isamuddin, who's the leader of Jemaah Islamiyah, a, 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 you know, the biggest terrorist organization in the Philippines, uh, he's at the uh, Malaysia Summit meeting, too. So they're all watching these people because they know who these people are. Okay, so a question I asked you previously when I was looking into this was, I asked, did Ramzi bin al-Shabib not get into the United States because he was on a terrorist watch list? I think I assume that's why he didn't get in, right? But that's not the case, right? He wasn't on. He didn't have his visa refused because he was on a terrorist watch list. He was just right. unlucky with the visa application. Right? That's so correct. It's kind of, is that strange that he wasn't on a terrorist watch list? Well, would it be strange if Khalid, Sheikh, uh, Khalid, uh, Khalid al Midar and the Wafahams weren't on a watch list? Yeah. I mean, they actually participated in the cold bombing. They were in the planning what, and what have you. I mean, Ramzi bin Shabib was actually really an unknown at this point. I, I think at that, between 98 and 99, don't, don't get me wrong, that they knew he was with some nefarious individuals, but he wasn't directly tied to a terrorist op operation like Khalid al Midar and the Wafahamsi were. So I, w I would say, yeah, he wasn't on the terrorism. He should have been on a. Um, on a suspect list, much less on a terrorist watch list, he should have been at least red flag, if you know what I mean. They should have had red flagged him. But he only, he was not, uh, like I reiterated before in 95, when he tried to get to the United States to offer a US visa program, he was denied right away. And I think it's just because he, he didn't speak much English. Um, he also was um, homeless at this time. He didn't mm -hmm. have much in the way of family. So I guess he was just rejected. He was just unlucky. He was just unlucky because okay. he, he, he was selected as a pilot. Right, yeah, yeah. So they had, they had to, to replace him, and to replace him was Hani Anjur. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll talk about Mohammed Attar more next time because a lot of the strange stuff around him comes up when he's in Florida at the aviation school. Um, Zihar Jara, however, the BBC did a documentary film 
uh, about, or was it Channel 4? Might have been Channel 4. I think it was Channel 4. Did a documentary on the Hamburg cell, which centered around Ziar Jara and his story. And the way it's presented is, uh, for all of them, particularly him, is, is this relatively secular guy who thinks of himself as a good Muslim, but he's not austere with it by any means. And he has his girlfriend and he likes to drink. He turns up and he gets progressively radicalized. So it kind of it makes sense, right? There's a story about young men um, going to a foreign country and, and getting radicalized. And that happens, you know, um, in, in all sorts of cults and terrorist groups and organized crime, there's a radicalization process that takes place. Okay. What it doesn't mention, uh, and what comes out years later, is the Arjara family have a connection to a certain intelligence agency, right? Now, is that? I mean, I can cut this bit out if you would, if you don't want to mention this, I will leave it later. But is, is that something you'd like to? I, yeah, I, I actually was going to bring this up in the second half. Okay, show, no, we'll leave it there. To show, yeah, to show is like a, a big like wow. Yeah, yeah it okay. Yeah, <laughs> right, we won't right. name the intelligence. We'll just, we'll I, I, that. I, that would that would be like put that would put the, the cookie before you get the dinner. Yeah, right? yeah. okay, okay, um, okay. So we'll we'll basically include there then for this time, and next time we'll look at Florida, all the strange goings on there, and try and dig a little deeper into who these these people are. Sure. Okay. Thank you very much, Adam, for this evening. We'll Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. Just an ending note. This has been the penultimate episode in our series. Adam has started a podcast called The Darkened Hour, which I'm assisting on. It's a spin-off of this series, which will go into even greater detail on some of the events of 9-11, as well as exploring wider geopolitical topics. I'll post some of the more general interest interviews we do on my channel, but if this is your sort of thing, links to the podcast are in the description box below.